You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. Well, tell someone next to you the title of my sermon this morning, Grace from Cradle to the Grave. Grace from Cradle to the Grave. Well, let me start off by wishing you all a very Merry Christmas to you and your families. I didn't think we'd get a white Christmas, but uh, lo and behold, we got a white windy uh, Christmas. Uh, So Merry Christmas to you all, and may your homes be filled with joy and with peace for the year to come. And while it's amazing to find that peace and that joy through family get-togethers and the exchanging of gifts, may we realize that true and everlasting joy and peace is found only in Jesus Christ. We rejoice for the King has come, and we receive Him. Amen. Now, today marks the last day of Advent, and so this was a season for us as a church for the preparation of Christmas, spending time reflecting on the birth of Christ, and we'll continue to do that today. We had a wonderful candlelight uh, service last week, and it was so awesome to be able to do that for the first time as a church, so praise God for that. Uh, Now, Christmas for us as a family is quite a busy uh, season. We take the festivities very seriously at our home. Our tree is up in November, actually, and and, we'll have the movie Home Alone playing in the background while we're putting the ornaments on the tree. We'll be sipping some hot cocoa and We end up doing a lot of dinners, a lot of gift exchanges, a lot of shopping during this season, and you won't believe it, you know, in our family, it's crazy. The the gift exchanges can get pretty pretty wild. We'll have a, a gift exchange for the family, we'll do another one in our life group, and then we'll do another one with another group of friends, and there's certainly a lot going on during this season. Now, when it comes to gifts, it's been said that anticipation exceeds realization, And certainly when it comes to Christmas gifts, I'm sure we've all experienced it in one time or another, and as we mature, we begin to anticipate Christmas in a different way, not because of what we'll get, but because of what we'll get to give. And uh, of course, if you shop diligently and you spend your hard-earned money for a family member's gift, and if, if it's ignored, I'm sure that would break your heart, wouldn't it? Have you guys ever left a Christmas gift unopened? I know I haven't. I've never left a Christmas gift uh, unopened. In fact, the only Christmas gifts that you'll ever find unopened are the ones that uh, don't actually are the ones that are wrapped, and then the person doesn't actually arrive to receive them. And sadly, when this comes to God's unsearchable gift, that is what many are doing. They've left the greatest of all gifts, the gift of God's love, wrapped up in His Son, Jesus Christ, unopened. There was an episode on the popular TV show, The Office. There were two co-workers, Dwight and Andy, and they get into this favor uh, battle. Dwight comes in with bagels into the office, and uh, you know when someone takes one of the bagels, he smiles at them and says, you owe me one. And he's planning to cash in all these favors, but it all comes crashing down when one of the other characters, Andy, insists on cashing all those favors immediately. And so every time Dwight does something, you know, Andy does something back for him, and it's kind of this back and forth, uh, trying to outdo one another in a kind of like a competition. 
And so while that may sound hilarious and it may sound ridiculous, it's actually a great illustration of sometimes how we give out of obligation and it can be hard for us to receive gifts. But we need to open up ourselves to the gift that God has given to us through Christ Jesus. From there, His grace will empower us and uh, allow us to pursue obedience because our obedience of course, does not empower grace. Now, before we get into the genealogy, before we get into our passage, I thought it'd be interesting to share a few facts about the birth of Jesus that maybe you haven't heard before. And so um, I found these quite interesting. I I knew some of these, but maybe the others I didn't know as much. Uh, So one of the facts is Mary and Joseph, believe it or not, had an arranged marriage. According to the Jewish custom, Mary and Joseph's marriage would have been negotiated by their fathers. And by the time that the angel appears to Mary, Mary would have already been betrothed legally to Joseph. And her father would have already received a dowry according to that culture. Uh, Mary lived with her family during her betrothal. And then one year time would pass. And then Joseph would be busy preparing the place for her uh, at to, at, uh, to a certain point which he will then receive her And the whole point of that is because God waited until after Mary's betrothal to announce his news. So God's plan for Mary also included Joseph too. So that's pretty interesting. Another fact was Joseph uh, loved mercy more than justice. The Bible calls Joseph a righteous man, meaning he was known for his uncompromising obedience to the Torah right, the laws of Moses. So when Joseph discovers that Mary is pregnant, uh, he knows that he's not the father. And this sounds like an episode on Morit, right? And um, the Torah clearly states that an unfaithful wife must be put to death, leaving Joseph, this law-abiding citizen, with this agonizing decision that he has to make. You know, do I leave her or do I, you know, do I stay? And, but when he's faced with this opportunity for justice, justice Joseph chooses mercy, right? His plan to privately free Mary from their arranged marriage by divorce reveals his his desire to spare her from public shame, from humiliation, rather than claim his rights, right? Joseph didn't allow his devotion to turn into some sort of legalism, and God revealed his divine purpose to Joseph. Another interesting fact, Joseph was actually not a carpenter, at least not in the traditional sense. Uh, here's where like, our English language really botches up what was in the Greek. The Greek word for carpenter uh, used to describe Joseph is tekton, which is more accurately translated to craftsman. So while it was possible that he could have been a woodworker, it's probably unlikely because the majority of homes uh, during that time, the buildings and construction in Nazareth were made out of stone, not wood. So Joseph was most likely a laborer and builder of, or possibly a stonemason. Uh, so that, that was interesting. You know, Nazareth was only three to four miles from this ancient town called Sephorus. And at the time, King Herod underwent this massive construction project. And so there was like an enormous rock quarry between the two towns. And it was likely that Joseph and Jesus... Uh, probably participated in the stonework there. So that's kind of interesting, right? You always picture Joseph as this carpenter, but maybe he probably wasn't. Um, another one, and this is one that I, I felt like I knew this, but um, it's, it's nice to see 
you know, research being done on this. So Bethlehem was actually an insignificant place. The city of David was considered small, it was considered insignificant, and the least among towns. So the king of kings was not born in this holy city of Jerusalem, but he was born in this little town of Bethlehem. What a humble thing for a king to do. It was the fulfillment of the messianic prophecy. Another one, and this is one that I see like on Hallmark cards. I don't know if you guys have seen this, but you know, Jesus being born in a stable, like that's just not a thing. Like Jesus was not born in a stable. Actually, the Bible never mentions the word stable or uh, innkeeper uh, in the gospel account of Jesus' birth. Instead, it says there was no room for them in the inn. And the Greek word for that actually refers to guest chamber not a public inn for strangers, right? Luke uses the same word later to refer to the upper room where Jesus ate with his disciples. Uh, so, and then when he goes on to tell the story about the Good Samaritan, he uses a different word for inn to refer to public housing. So the truth is Mary and Joseph were not in a barn and it's unlikely that Joseph actually delivered the baby. Instead, it was more probable that he, they stayed with relatives in Bethlehem, but there was no place for them in the guest room. And so Jesus was probably born in like the lower room of the house where the animals were brought in for the night, a place where a manger would have been nearby for Mary to use as a crib. So that was kind of interesting, right? Because I see all the Hallmark cards and you always picture the, the, the nativity to be a certain way. The wise men, they were actually pagan priests. That's new for me. The Magi mentioned in the Gospel of Matthew, they were astrologers. Uh, they came from this priestly class uh, from the land of Persia. Persia is modern-day Iran. And they were skilled in interpreting omens. They were skilled in interpreting dreams and stars. And in the, in the Old Testament, Daniel spent 70 years among the exile, uh, among the Magi, uh, far in the east. So these wise men may have traveled well over a thousand miles by camel just to see baby Jesus. And in those days, a new star in the sky was often uh, herald, uh, believed to herald a, a birth of a significant person in the land where the star had shone. So um, that was interesting for me. Uh, another thing is that the Bible doesn't actually mention that there were three wise men. We all think that there were three wise men, but the Bible doesn't actually say that that was how many Magi visited Jesus. Tradition assumes that there were three wise men because there were three gifts that were given, and all three gifts were significant enough for a king. And so we just assume that there were three, but the Bible actually doesn't say that there were three. That was one that was kind of interesting, right? Because we always just picture three. Uh, I got one more here, and this is probably the most obvious, but maybe not obvious to you, maybe, but Jesus was not born on December 25th, or in winter for that fact. Uh, Jesus was likely born in the spring when the shepherds are watching over their flock in the night because the little lambs were being born, but the exact day of Jesus' birth is still unknown. And it wasn't until the 4th century, during the Roman Catholic Church, uh, they decided to celebrate the birth of Jesus and chose the 25th of December, which is the same day that Rome celebrated you know, the winter solstice and the birth of their uh, pagan gods uh, and pagan festivals. So to this day, Easter, not Christmas, is Christianity's most important and celebrated holiday worldwide. 
So what? So why am I just going through these facts? Well, the historical and cultural details of Jesus' birth don't ruin Christmas. Rather, they make it more thrilling. They bring a new depth, a new insight into God's brilliant and intentional plan to save the world. God's work throughout Scripture is detailed. It's personal. It's intimate. It's full of symbolism. And no one detail of the Messiah's birth was a coincidence. Each person involved was handpicked by God, specific for a purpose. And so I thought those facts were pretty neat and perhaps maybe even clarified some misunderstandings that you may have had about Jesus' birth. So now that I've broken the ice uh, this morning, you know, quite literally driving here this morning, we broke the ice, I want to draw your attention and focus to the Christmas story shared in Matthew. God gave us four Gospels in the New Testament. Each Gospel has its own particular focus. Mark's Gospel presents Jesus as a humble servant. Luke's Gospel presents Jesus as the Son of Man. And John's Gospel presents Jesus as the Son of God. And we have Matthew's Gospel here that presents Jesus as Messiah and King. Throughout the gospel, Matthew digs into the Old Testament scriptures to show us that Jesus is truly the promised Messiah. And he uses the word, the word king more than any other writer in the New Testament, 22 times to be exact. And he emphasizes it even in the very first of the gospel when he identifies Jesus as the Christ that is the Messiah and descended from David, which of course, if you are descended from David, then you, that puts you in royalty. You're basically in descending from this lineage of kings. Now, genealogies are extremely important in many cultures. Even, uh, even in our culture, more people are interested in finding about their family history, researching their history. And we have like these online tools now, right? You have 23andMe, you have Ancestry.ca, and you're able to now trace your family lines, and it's pretty neat. You can now find all these details about your, your DNA, like your health predispositions, and you can learn about your family history. Learning about your family history gives you an, a new sense of identity, and we call it our roots. And it's fascinating to find our place in history, and some of us even record our family trees which is interesting because Matthew recorded Jesus' family tree in which we all have access to in Scripture. Now you have to understand that genealogies were especially important to the Jewish people. They were maintained in the Sanhedrin until the records were destroyed in 70 AD. You know, every Jew could have told you which tribe they came from, which tribe they originated from. And it wasn't unusual to begin a book with the genealogy. For example, if you've ever read the book of 1 Chronicles, the first nine chapters, all of that is all just this one long genealogy. Genealogies are important because people are important. Each person is important to God. We don't just have names. We all have value. We all have dignity. We all have worth. Now, there are four ways to look at this genealogy, and you could see it as just a long list of names. Or you could look at it a little bit closer and see that the names are divided into these three groups of 14 names each. Or you can look at it as three different sections and beginning, uh, and they're each headed with a major person. We have Abraham, we have David, and we have 
the exile. And then if you look at it real carefully, you'll notice that there are four women in the course of this genealogy. So there are four ways of looking at this genealogy and four things that we can learn from each of them. So this morning, it is my desire, church, to show you from our passage four things that Jesus' birth is rooted in. Everyone has a past, and Jesus is no exception, so let's take a closer look at his genealogy. So what does this passage tell us about Jesus' birth? Matthew 1. Number one, Jesus' birth is rooted in history. If there's anything that a long list of names tells us is that Jesus had a past. He didn't just come out of nowhere. Jesus' birth is rooted in history. From archaeological findings which prove the existence of Nazareth, the town where Jesus grew, the census to the census that was recorded by Luke and confirmed by the examination of, of different manuscripts to support, even outside of Scripture, you can't deny that history supports Jesus' birth. And these lists of facts coupled with the genealogies here that we're reading about, that should be evidence enough for the unbelieving world that the birth of Jesus is deeply rooted in history. But unfortunately, people still don't believe by beginning his gospel with Jesus' Jesus's genealogy, what Matthew do, is doing here is he's establishing Jesus' true humanity. He's a real parent with grandparents, with brothers and sisters and cousins. And we see 46 names here in this passage. Here he is. And all of these 46 names point to him. He is here, the second person in the Trinity, God who became flesh in order to save the world. And this is what theologians refer to as the incarnation. Maybe you've heard that term before. And some people ask, was Jesus really human? You know, he did all these miracles. He lived this perfect life. But the proof here is in the pudding. We have to read and we can see Jesus had a history. Here we see his true humanity. And it's interesting that Jesus' genealogy runs all the way up to Joseph and then it switches track at the last minute to Mary. Look at verse 16 with me. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was, was born Jesus, who was called Christ. Over and over again in this genealogy, the person we, we refer to, it's like this person was the father of this person and that person was the father of this person. But all of a sudden here at the end, it switches to Mary. That father language is missing with Joseph. That's because Jesus was born of Mary, but merely adopted by Mary's husband, Joseph. And so why, why even have this long genealogy leading up to Joseph if Joseph was not Jesus' birth father? Because by Palestinian law, by that culture, the head of the family was no less the father of their adopted children than they were of their biological children. And so Jesus' adoptive relationship with Joseph places him in a real relationship with all the people that came before him. You see, Jesus' birth is rooted in history. So the next time you're reading scripture, don't just skip you know, the genealogies because you find them long-winded, you find them boring, you find the names difficult to pronounce. I mean, I find them difficult to pronounce. But understand the historical context, the historical importance behind such passages in Scripture 
This text, although it appears long, although it appears insignificant, it points to Christ. It points to Jesus. When we read Scripture, we should always ask ourselves, how does this tie back to Christ? All right, so moving on, right? Jesus' birth, we know, was rooted in history. Now, secondly, Jesus' birth is rooted in God's sovereignty. Jesus' birth is rooted in God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty means that God is absolute in authority and unrestricted in his supremacy. Everything that happens is at the very least a result of God's permissive will. This even holds true in circumstances that, that God would not, even though he would not prefer, it happens. And nonetheless, God is in control. Matthew demonstrates God's sovereignty here by dividing the genealogy into three sections, again, of 14 names. That was a very specific thing. But before we take a look at, as, as to why he did this, we need to look at what selective genealogies are in the Bible. The Bible often uses these selective genealogies to condense these historical accounts to highlight the most important names. And we also have to remember that in the ancient world, uh, the word father not only meant father, but it can also mean grandfather. It can mean great-grandfather. Uh, it can even mean an ancestor. And so we see an example of this in Matthew in verse 1, where Jesus is called the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, we know it's not three generations there. We know Abraham is not David's father, and we know David is not Jesus' father. But in verse 1, Matthew is highlighting the most important names in sequence. There's nothing sneaky about that. That's just the way that genealogies worked in that culture. And so, everyone knew what Matthew meant when they were reading it at the time. Matthew was simply showing that Jesus had descended from David who then was descended from Abraham. And I know this can seem quite confusing to us because we think that genealogy should be inclusive. We think that they should be this, this list with all the names in it. But for the Jews, it was okay to highlight the most important names, right? The lists of the grandfathers, the list of the ancestors, instead of all the fathers. And perhaps the, most, the closest parallel that we find today is Americans, right? Americans call George Washington the father of their country doesn't mean that George Washington was the literal dad of the country. It means that he was the founder of the country. And so we use father in a different way there. And so why does Matthew divide his genealogy into three groups of 14 generations? Look at verse 17. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. Matthew is speaking theologically here. He's showing that God is sovereign over all these three stages of Israel's history. From the time of Abraham to David, that was a time of Israel rising in power as God's people multiplied and they came to the promised land and the kingdom was established. And then there was the time from David to the exile. That was a time of declining power for the nation of Israel because they were divided. They rebelled against God and they eventually dispersed into the exile. Then there was the time of the exile to Christ. That was a time of rebuilding as a remnant returned to the land. And the sacrifices of the temple were reinstated. And people were waiting for the coming Messiah. You see, Matthew is speaking theologically here. He's selected 
and he's highlighted various names in the, the, uh, in the genealogy to balance these sections out to 14 names each. The number 14 was very significant in, in Judaism, right? Hebrew letters were assigned a numerical value, and every good Jew would know that 14 was the numerical value for King David's name. 14 is also double the number 7, and 7, we know, is a number of completeness in Scripture. And so, if you do the math, this is kind of geeky to do this math, but you know, you have the three groups of 14, which is six groups of seven, which would have meant Jesus was born at the beginning of the seventh seven. That is a very fitting and a climactic place for the Messiah's birth. That number of perfection, that number of completeness. In other words, for Matthew, God's sovereignty is displayed so clearly here. Matthew is showing that God is sovereign over all the persons and all the events up to Jesus' birth and that Jesus is the climax of Israel's history. It all leads to Jesus. Jesus' birth is rooted in God's sovereignty. That was kind of cool and when the math adds up there. I was reading it from scholars and it's interesting how they do this study. God is, is definitely not a God of accidents. Everything is, is planned and He is sovereign. He is in control. Thirdly, the passage here is demonstrated that Jesus' birth is rooted in God's promises. Jesus' birth is rooted in God's promises. Matthew not only divided this uh, this genealogy into three sections of 14 each, but this, each section has to do with the significant person that we were mentioning. And so each person that was at, uh, for each section, God has made a promise to, and they all have to do with the birth of a son. That sounds a little bit like Christmas, doesn't it? First of all, God's promise to Abraham is it's found in Genesis 22:18, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And God promised Abraham that he would have a son and that through his son all nations would be blessed. Now in one sense we would think that that's Isaac and Isaac certainly he was a, a miracle child, right? His mother was barren, they were in their 90s and Yet Paul in the New Testament shows us that this promise was really fulfilled in Christ. We read in Galatians 3.16, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. You see, the miraculous birth of Isaac in the Old Testament foreshadows the birth of Jesus in the new. And so Matthew's genealogy both begins and ends with this miraculous birth of a child in the fulfillment of God's promises. The second section, right, the second group, starts with David. And sure enough, God made a promise to David as well about a son. God's promise to David is found in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel 7, 12-16, which says... When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your, off, your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. 
He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took from Saul. My steadfast love will not depart from him as I took from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So in one sense, this promised son was Solomon. But Solomon turned away from God and did not sit on the throne forever. But this promise is actually awaiting this future fulfillment in Christ who does reign on the throne forever. Remember how Matthew began his gospel in verse 1, right? A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Matthew not only uses the word king more than any New Testament writer, he also uses the, the phrase son of David more than any other writer in the New Testament. Now take a look at all of this, all of verse 1 in light of these two promises, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus is both the promised son of Abraham and the promised son of David. So those are two promises. And then the last section, the third section, is that of the exile. And God made promises to Abraham and David about a son, and he also made a promise to the exile. The exile is about a son, and we read that in Isaiah. Isaiah 9, 6-7, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of the peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The book of Isaiah was written to warn God's people about this coming exile and to give them comfort during it. And the exile was Israel's lowest moment in Israel's history. And we read that they suffered the loss of Jerusalem, they suffered the loss of the temple, the loss of their freedom, and it seemed like God's promises had been lost. But Isaiah prophesied about this child to be born whose government and peace would never end. Earlier, he spoke about a virgin giving birth. In Isaiah 7, 14, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And although Matthew will speak more about the, the virgin birth in the second half of the chapter, he's already hinted about it in the genealogy. In verse 16, where Joseph was named not as the father of Jesus, but as the husband of Mary, whom Jesus was born. You see, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham uh, that all the nations would be blessed through him, and he's the fulfillment of God's promise to David that a king would rule forever on the throne, and he is the fulfillment of God's promises to the exiles that a child will be born and will reign over all. Jesus' birth is rooted in God's promises. Moving on, we have finally, Jesus' birth is rooted in God's grace. In God's grace. We learn this from the women Matthew includes in this genealogy. It was highly unusual to include women in a Jewish genealogy. But Matthew includes four of them. And if you ask any good Jewish 
person, which four women would most likely be included in an Old Testament genealogy? The answer would easily be Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah, right? The, the wives of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? They were the goats. But instead of Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah, we get Tamar, we get Rahab, we get Ruth, we get Bathsheba. Four women with questionable backgrounds. You know, everyone has a few crazies in their family tree. And Jesus had some skeletons in his family closet. Let's look briefly at each of these women and their questionable backgrounds. Tamar, we read about her in Genesis 38. Tamar had incest in her background. Judah was her father-in-law. When Judah lost his wife, Tamar slept with Judah and gave birth to the twins, twins Perez and Zerah. And through Perez, this messianic line continued. So Jesus had incest in his family line. Next, there was Rahab. We read about her in Joshua. Rahab was a prostitute who lived in the city of Jericho. She became the, the mother of Boaz, who is the great-grandfather of King David. So Jesus had a prostitute in his family line. And then there was Ruth. Ruth was from Moab. Deuteronomy 23.3 says, No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter to the assembly of the Lord forever. And yet God had mercy on Ruth. She not only came to Israel, she married Boaz and became the great-grandmother of King David. And so Jesus had foreign blood in his family line. And then we finally come to Bathsheba, right? Although, notice how Matthew doesn't actually call her by her name, instead calls her Uriah's wife. This not only reminds us that of David's adultery with Bathsheba, but also the murder of Uriah to cover it up. And so Jesus, Jesus had adultery and he had murder in his family line. And so what are we to make of these four women in Jesus' genealogy? I believe that they are meant to show us that Jesus' birth is rooted in God's grace. Jesus' family line was populated not with righteous Jews, but with sinners like you and me. Not only that, but all four of these women were non-Jews. Tamar was a Canaanite, Rahab was from Jericho, Ruth was from Moab, Bathsheba was married to a Hittite. That teaches us that Jesus came for all people from all nations, just as God promised Abraham so many years before. Matthew teaches us that Jesus came not for the righteous, but for sinners. And already in his genealogy, Matthew is teaching us that Jesus came not only for, but through a family line of sinners. Romans 8.3 says that God sent His Son in the likeness of sinful men. And Hebrews 2.11 says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us His brothers. Even Martin Luther comments on this. He says, Christ is the kind of person who is not ashamed of sinners. In fact, He puts them in His family tree. 
Jesus came not for the righteous, but for sinners. Jesus' birth is rooted in history. It's rooted in God's sovereignty. It was rooted in God's promises. But Jesus' birth is also rooted in God's grace. This is grace from cradle to the grave. Grace is a gift from God in the person of Jesus. It is the unmerited favor of God. His undeserved kindness that he shows through the incarnation, that he shows through his death and his resurrection for the sins of the world. And faith is the simple trust that clings on to God's grace, holding him to the promise of, the, of salvation that he gives us. There is nothing that you can do to earn it. There's nothing that you can do to deserve it. If you are hearing this message today and have not put your faith and trust in Christ, then I urge you to repent and believe. Turn from your sin and put your faith and trust in the God we preach about. Child of God, it's not just Jesus' life here that was full of grace. Your life too, from now till the grave, and life thereafter can experience this grace that we preach about. Everyone has a past. I have a past. You have a past. And it's important to realize that your life too is rooted in history. It's rooted in God's sovereignty, in God's promises, and God's grace. How so? First of all, your, your life is rooted in history. You too have a genealogy. You are descended from Adam. As C.S. Lewis liked, uh, liked to say, we are all sons and, of Adam and daughters of Eve. And unfortunately, that's not a good thing. Because when you trace your lineage back to Adam, your history also includes Adam's sin, the original sin which affects everyone in our family line, including you. David wrote in Psalm 51, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And so you might wonder why would David consider himself sinful at birth even before he was old enough to commit a sin. And the answer is because we descended from Adam. Paul writes in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. We are all descended from Adam, and so we all share in Adam's sin. Your life is rooted in history. Your life is also rooted in God's sovereignty. God is so sovereign over the minute details of your life. We read in Psalm 139.16, Your eyes saw my unformed sub substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me. Yet, yet there was none of them. And in Acts 17.26, it says, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Right, we read about in Scripture, right, God knowing us even in our mother's wombs, God knowing the hairs on our very head, all the numbers of hairs that we have on our head. Your life is in God's hands. Your life is rooted in God's sovereignty. Your life is also rooted in God's promises. Yes, we are all sinners by birth, but God's promises are greater than your sin. Jesus promised in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will, will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And later on, Peter, when he preaches to the crowd during the day of Pentecost, he says in Acts 2, 38 to 39, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise 
is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The promise is for you and for all who believe. Your life is rooted in God's promises. And then finally, your life is rooted in God's grace. The Bible says, For you have been saved by grace through faith, and it is not of your own doing, right? Not a result of works so that no one would boast. In Titus 3, 4, 5, But when the darkness, when the goodness and the loving kindness of our God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. So with these truths, right, that you're rooted in history, that you're rooted in God's sovereignty and His promises and in His grace, how will you choose to respond this morning, church? When the Christmas wrapping paper has been thrown away and when the Christmas tree has been taken down and when the Christmas meals have been eaten and forgotten, remember that Jesus will forever be the same. He is, after all, the same yesterday, today, and forever. So open your heart to Jesus this Christmas, and he will open to you the greatest of all Christmas gifts, the gift of his love and the gift of eternal life. This is the gift that you don't want to leave unopened, the gift of grace from cradle to the grave. You see, Jesus could have been born to a wealthy, prominent family in the holy city of Jerusalem, With all the fanfare of a king, instead, God chose a young woman, an outsider from Nazareth, lowly shepherds, pagan foreigners, a little town, this humble manger, to announce the birth of his son. Right? He chose this unexpected family line for Jesus as well. Why does God choose such an unexpected cast of characters to proclaim his good news? He wants to make one thing absolutely clear. Jesus is for his people. Jesus came for the foreigners, the outcasts, the despised, the rejected, the imperfect, the sick, the broken, the weary, the weak, the depressed, the needy, the criminals. He came for sinners. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son to seek and save the lost He will not reject or despise anyone who turns to him, but freely offers his grace and forgiveness to anyone who believes and accepts it. God continues to choose the unexpected to shine his light to the world, writing this story of hope and and peace and redemption for all to see. It is Jesus and this good news that makes Christmas so merry and so bright. God's message for you, church, through Jesus' genealogy is a message of hope. It's a message of, of peace. Jesus Christ has come. He is the son of David, the son of Abraham. He is the fulfillment of all of God's promises, and he extends his promise of salvation to all who believe him. Your life is rooted in history, in God's sovereignty, in his promises, and in his grace. Will you trust Jesus this Christmas season? Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time that you have given to us to recall all.
and died the death that we could not die. We thank you, Lord, for your grace. We know, Lord, that you did not come for the righteous, but you came for sinners like us. And so, Lord, as we reflect on your word, I pray, God, that it would go deep, that it would have long and lasting life change, God, this morning. I pray, God, in the busyness of Christmas, in the, in the busyness of all the festivities, God, that we would not forget that you are the reason, God, for the season. Help us, Lord, to take that time, Lord, to focus on you, to understand that you never change, God. You will be forever the same. Lord, we pray that this would not just be head knowledge, Lord, but that it would take root in our hearts. We know, God, that your word does not return void. And so we pray, God, that it would turn into action. Lord, Help us to live out these truths, God, that because, Lord, we have history, that because, Lord, we know you're sovereign, because, Lord, we know that your promises are fulfilled through Jesus Christ and your grace extends to us, Lord, that we would live empowered by your spirit to faithfully live for you. And in those moments where we're feeling weak, in those moments where we're feeling not worthy, I pray, God, that we would not be shamed, but come to you and ask for forgiveness, Lord. Ask for you to make us whole. Work in our hearts, God. May you be exalted this morning in our worship. We ask all these things in Jesus, your matchless name, I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.